Welcome to the table. You are listening to the Kingstown Communion podcast with lead pastor Michelle Matthews. The Kingstown Communion is a new United Methodist Church existing to gather people into communion with Jesus Christ through courageous conversation, creative community, and collaborating for the common good. For more information about upcoming events and opportunities to serve, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Kingstown Communion. We're glad that you're listening along with us. If you live close by, we hope you'll join us for worship in person. And if you ever feel so inclined to help us by giving financially, you can do so on our website, kingstowncommunion.net. The scripture this morning comes from Ephesians 5, 8 through 17 and 6, 10 through 13. Once you were darkness, but now in the Lord you are light. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. Try to find out what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, rather expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what such people do secretly, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, for everything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Sleeper, awake, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be careful then how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. So do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, so that you may be able to withstand on the evil day, and, having prevailed against everything, to stand firm. The word of God for the people of God. So we uh, are in our third week of a sermon series. Can you all hear me fine? maybe a little more juice. We're in a um, third week of a sermon series on race here, um, and it's engendered a tremendous amount of conversation, maybe not among y'all, but in my inbox for sure. And, and from my experience, it's not just like the volume of email, it's the, um, it's the, the length of those emails as well, right? Like there, you cannot say things and begin a conversation or begin to say, how you're, what you're thinking and, and how you're experiencing it in a, like a small paragraph when we, when, when we are talking about race. You just can't. And so I've been thinking about how to capture for you all all, that, all those conversations that are happening in my email. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mention some of it today, but, but I've realized that what many, what many of our people are, are sharing with me, if they're willing to share it, 
should be heard directly from them, not just indirectly from me. And so we have actually de decided to adapt the month of February just a little bit. We had a plan. We shortened the next series by one week. Um, we put it on hold because I want to give next Sunday to the storytellers. I want to give next Sunday to those people who have something to say, who have been saying things that I would love you to hear, not from me, um, but from them, those who, are, um, who, who can do it, who, who, who feel as if they can take a space that is difficult and, and, and speak about, about things that are um, unpleasant, um, but real, right? And so next um, Sunday, uh, their stories are going to be the sermon. Um, we will have kind of a panel, and I've been asking a few people, and so uh, I hope you'll come. If there is any week that you should show up of this series in person, you watch it online, sure, you can go listen on the podcast, but that's not the same as being in person um, for the Sunday that that happens. So I really hope you will. Um, but today we're going to wrap up these three weeks of building a theological framework for race by exploring what the Bible says about race and racism and justice. And in many ways, we, we live in the tension, right? That's why I get in your emails, the tension of the already, but the not yet, and definitely not yet, right? We, we've already come so far. Like since the Civil Rights Act was passed, we have already come so far. We acknowledge that. When, when the first diversity training, one of you was talking to me about this in email, when the first diversity training came into the corporate world or government world, it was like, like you're gonna sit here and you're going to take this. But, but as, as one of you mentioned, in, you've, we've discovered now that we're not d diverse because we've been forced to be, not diverse to our peril, but no, like our customers expect for us to be smart and creative and thoughtful and, and comprehensive. And when they see that our team looks all alike, you said, they just do not buy that. And so we've come a long way. It's our diversity that makes, the best of who we need to be. That's what one of you, you said to me. And so yes, that is a huge shift between like the you must and, and it's in the best interest of our company now. That's a shift for sure. And we, we live in the already, but not yet. One of the oldest members in our congregation um, has shared with me they, many years of love and, and companionship and a mixed race partnership shared later in life, they spend a lot of time, as you do later in life, going to funerals. And it's just extraordinary and such a gift to look around at the end of someone's life and notice the, the incredible diversity of ethnicity and culture in the room at these funerals. It wasn't until 1967 that interracial marriage became legal, and now today the extent at which Loving Day directly affects the lives and the love and the little ones of people in our congregation is quite incredible. It's beautiful and abounding, this gift to our church, this sign, though still, of that tension between the already so much and still not yet. 
I've heard your stories of the, of the not yet, like, like stories of traveling home um, to spend time with your relatives you love so deeply or have these memories of as a kid or a teenager, memories that, that just made you hold them in such high esteem with such reverence, these people in your lives. And then you say you go home now and it's just so hard and it's so different because you don't know how to reconcile that early life foundational respect and reverence that you had with the vile words you hear coming out of their mouth about people of other ethnicities and cultures. Their words, like they're just so vile and they, and they continue to blame their economic situation on other people and how they, they had good jobs until those people got here and it just makes you feel sad now when you go home and it also makes you feel a bit guilty now when you go home that, that those people who seem to hold the stars in their hands in your life, those big figures, can only see the threat, never the opportunity, and you feel as though there, there's not enough to go around, and, and you're convinced, they're, they're convinced that these people are to blame for it. There's this already, and then there's this not yet, right? But that's the tension we all live in, and so as Christians, we have to ask ourselves now, um, where are we going to go to make sense of this tension? Where, where do we go? What's the resource for us as Christians? And I believe that the Bible remains like the best resource. I do. The Bible, it's pages filled with this incredible story. God's incredible story of the already, but the not quite yet, right? The letters of Paul, the stories of the early church, I've been, I've been reading them lately. You, we've been reading them here again, Romans and Ephesians and Philippians and, and the book of Acts, even documenting the collective story of the churches forming as, as it unfolds. And I've been reading these in this new light lately, this whole new light as I've been noticing how Paul is trying to speak to people of different ethnicities and cultures and languages. Paul always went to these urban centers to plant churches and to preach Antioch and Ephesus and Athens because if, if you want a really good idea to get spread far and wide to catch like fire, you go to the cities, right? That's, that's why cities are important. Really good ideas catch fire in cities. And Paul arrives at these incredibly ethnically diverse seaports, and he has to learn how to speak across all of that dissimilarity. That the origin of the text that Carly read this morning um, for us, that, that is the origin of that text. That's the urgency and the passion and, and a little anxiety you can hear from Paul too. You're hearing it under his voice as you're reading it in Ephesians. Uh, that's, Paul knew well the reality of the already but the not yet. It's in these, these verses that demonstrate just how the Bible can be this glorious resource for us in our own similar tension. And of course, right, there are other places we can go to. There are other frameworks, other resources. Most recently, um, you know, the namesake of our sermon series, one that has cropped up in the American lexicons, sparking deep debate and fear and more division across an already divided social, political landscape, critical race theory. And so let me briefly explain today what this is, where it came from, 
before we, we analyze it in light of scripture. But before we get to critical race theory, we have to actually talk first about critical theory. Critical theory um, was actually developed inside a school in, in Germany in the late 1920s and in early 1930s, and it was led by the scholar Horkemeyer. And what Horkemeyer meant by the word critical was it was a different way of analyzing society than the ways society had always been analyzed before, that we shouldn't just accept culture, what culture says about itself. But we must also see what's really going on beneath the surface of culture. An individual engaging in like critical theory must be able to explain what is wrong with the current social reality being analyzed. Identify who are the powers that are maintaining what is wrong through the systems and rhythms of that society? What are the norms that should be criticized? What is the evidence of wrongdoing and what are the practical ways a society can be transformed then? This way of, of thinking about society, this critical theorizing for Horkemeyer was synonymous, yes, you might have heard this, with Marxism. His tool of analysis was the lens of Marxism, it was, and he used critical theory to identify what values of capitalism were producing injustice in the society that it was in. You may have heard critical race theory accused of this, that, it, that it's basically just Marxism, buyer beware, total secularism, church stay away. But while yes, it began out of Marxism, it's not where it actually stayed. What emerges is this like second generation of, of social re researchers at this school in Germany, out of which since the mid 20th century, little, literary theory and like feminist theory and queer theory got, got their footing out of this, seeking to unmask and, and undermine the oppressive structures of Western society. And among those, this second generation of theorists was Jürgen Habermas. And he expanded on this earlier critical theory by saying that critical theory cannot, cannot, should not ever be exercised unless it is for a moral goodness. Not just to be exercised, just to be critical, but it must be for a moral goodness and it, it must be justified. Habermas wrote furiously well into the 1990s even, um, exposing how secularism in other words, this, like, that humanistic perspective of pushing God out, keeping religious thought out of spaces of law and politics, out of social and, and political discourse and criticism, how this was actually preventing all of us from having a better idea and model for society Instead, he believed and wrote that religious voices can actually impact society for good if they learned to communicate their ideas in an understandable language that's not so religious. What a far stray from the secularism of Marxism that this has been blamed for. But now let's move back to like, critical race theory. 
because its roots are actually much older than critical theory even. A critical race theory grew out of something known as, as critical legal studies. It grew out of something, um, these legal studies, it wasn't even a, a global perspective. It wasn't a methodology um, of any kind. It wasn't an ideology of any kind. It was particularly focused and centered in the United States of America as it related to law. Basically, critical legal studies focused on the relationship between legal scholarship and the struggle to see a more humane and egalitarian and democratic society. And so it contained within it insights from Supreme Court rulings like Scott v. Sanford and and Plessy v. Ferguson in, in the late 1800s, legal debates surrounding that flawed, separate but equal phrase that is in so many of our founding documents, as well as like colorblindness and and the neutrality of American law. And so this is where critical race theory comes in. And one of its architects realized that, that the momentum of the civil rights movement in the 60s had stalled when it became evident that a lot of the implementation and and legislative changes that were happening in the 60s weren't being made by white academics. In fact, Derrick Bell himself, one of the the non-Anglo founders of critical race theory, in an interview just before he died, distanced himself from what would later be popularized as critical race theory misappropriated as Marxism because he, he said he didn't want people to think that he had to turn to European white men to understand the racial interactions that he as a black man had endured his whole life in the United States of America. What do we do with this? Is this already and this not yet? And as we live in our our own tension of the already and the not yet and ask what do we do? Where do we go? What answers do we get? What resources do we have? One resource for us can be, it can be critical race theory that holds these five themes that you see here. A race is man-made. This, this created American identity into which immigrants from like Eastern and, and Southern Europe could more easily assimilate. That, that it's per, this permanence in the United States of America, and, and a lot of that is based in the language of our founding documents, this like separate be equal phrase that continually trips up people of color in, in the American judicial system. Those counter stories from marginalized people. In Christian language, we call a counter story a testimony It's somebody sharing their testimony of how they have interacted with racism in America. It's it's what we'll do next week. That being colorblind, saying I don't see race, is not being truthful, but it's also just not being helpful in the conversation of race in America. That that healing never, it never, Race as we know it today, consolidated ethnicities, national, nationalities, cultures, as like tick, ticking off a government census form, right? It's not, 
It's not true, and it's, it doesn't testify to the particularity of our experiences. This is why some theologians now, on the cutting edge of like dreaming of what the multi-ethnic church could actually look like, this church the church should be, say that, that the Bible calls us not to racial reconciliation, but what, it, what they call ethnic conciliation, accomplished only when we affirm, not ignore, not idolize, but affirm the ethnic heritages of every human being and, and seek to move, to remove all that animosity and distrust and hostility from within our relationships. In fact, we'll even hear from somebody in our congregation um, next week who is from, would, would be identified as race, white, from a country in which there are multiple ethnicities, multiple religions, and they do not get along. There is animosity there. That's it's just such an interesting perspective. And a perspective that brings to light how the Bible just never ever talks about race. And of course, scripture testifies to, to the permanent condition of racism as well because it testifies to the pervasiveness of sin in our lives, right? The, the human condition is this already but not yet reality until heaven is fully on earth and Jesus comes back and sets a banquet feast for us, the sin of racism will persist. Because even when we have like sought God with all our hearts and repented and been forgiven, the legacy of generational sin and generational racism is like, is like Adam's original sin. It continues to prove that primal sin within us to make ourselves our own God and to make God look like us. This is actually what we, we see when we read some of the earliest stories of the church in Ephesians and Acts. There's even this one story in Acts um, that I think can, can give us, can shed some light on this today. Um, uh, this story in Acts where Paul is preaching and planting a church in the metropolis of Athens up on a hill that overlooks all of these temples to a variety of gods. You know, the largest temple was built to Athena, but there's all these little temples too. And in each little cove, every temple would be dedicated, consecrated to many other gods as well. And everywhere Paul goes, there are these little temples to a pantheon of, of gods. And Paul's still trying to figure out how do I talk to all of these people with all of their gods? How do I speak their language? And so he looks down from this hill and he points to all of these temples as he's preaching one day and says, listen, you have this one altar and it's to an unknown God. And I'm here today to tell you about that God. And he, and he starts preaching the good news of, of this God, the, the gospel. And Paul says, you can't contain this God within a temple built with human hands. And then he tells them three things. He says, this God, this unknown God, made all the world and everything in it. And everyone that God made is a child of the living God. And let me tell you, three, three, that's not three, three, idols, all these other idols are not worthy of your attention. 
Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or like silver or like stone, like all these other gods, an image made by human hand and skill. The thing about worshiping an idol is that we can change the idol to be just about anything we want it to be, but we don't have to change in the process. If I'm, war, if I'm, if I'm warlike, if I want to wage war, I'll just worship Mars, and it will reinforce my warlike tendencies. If God is God, and I'm worshiping God, then God should begin to change me. Shouldn't? Shouldn't God? That's why worshiping an idol is so much easier than actually worshiping God. And I wonder, if Paul came to America, what would Paul have said were our idols? Paul stood on on the hill of the United States, and he, and, he, and he pointed down to all our temples. What would Paul have said were our idols? When I think about the idols of America, I think, um, think of two first. I think of wealth, and I think of power. And then I think, when I think on wealth and power, and goodness, do I wish I could separate this out from wealth and power, but I can't. The third, I would say, is, is whiteness. Maybe, our li- maybe your list is different than mine. Maybe it's not mine, and that's okay. You don't have to have the same list as, as me. Maybe it slightly overlaps, but I wonder what you think. Like, if Paul were to come to America, which idols would he find and are already but are not yet? Critical race theory can be a resource for us as we live in this tension of that, you know, already but not yet. But, but, but so can the Bible. In fact, I think the current division in our country and, like, the kind of, of pervasive distrust we have for one another that allows something like CRT to become in 2022 out of nowhere the thing of our fiercest debate is because our political and and critical discourse is so profoundly robbed of any sense of moral goodness that we are in need of our Habermas moment right now or our Martin Luther King moment right now with the help and wisdom of God and to, to help us lead us into this new understanding, this new wave of justice that looks like the justice of God and, all, and not like the justices that we've created. Here's what we've actually been, been working with thus far, as far as justice is concerned. Here's what we got. All of these ways of dealing in justice that Martin Luther King wrote in his letter from a Birmingham jail, he said, they all assume that there are not transcendent moral absolutes on which to base justice. They all assume that there is no supernatural reality, and so moral values and the definition of justice itself are just invented time and time again by human beings. 
They all see human nature as this blank slate that can be wholly reshaped by human means rather than, King said, the God-given nature we know it to be that must be honored for all of us to thrive. Libertarianism claims like, that a just society promotes individual freedom. Liberalism claims a just society promotes fairness for all. Utilitarianism claims that a just society maximizes the greatest happiness for the greatest number of people. Postmodernism, out of which critical race theory evolved, claims that a just society subverts the power of dominant groups to favor the <coughs> oppressed. But biblical justice addresses all of the concerns of justice found across the fragmented alternate views. But not just that. Biblical justice contradicts each alternate view neither by dismissing it nor by compromising with it. it we, the justice we find in the Bible is significantly more well-grounded based in God's character, this moral absolute, while the other theories are based on the changing winds of human culture. And that never seems to work for us time and time again. Biblical justice is more penetrating in its analysis of the human condition, seeing injustice stemming from a more complex set of causes. It's social, it's individual, it's environmental, it is spiritual. And it, it provides this unique understanding of wealth and ownership that does not fit into any modern category of capitalism or socialism. And only biblical justice offers this radically subversive understanding of power that the postmodern CRT view can't even touch in and of itself. That, that when God came to earth in Jesus Christ, he came as a poor man. God came as a poor man to a family at the bottom of the social ladder, experienced torture and death at the hands of religious and government elites, use, using their power daily unjustly to oppress people. In Jesus, we see God laying down God's privilege and God's power, God's glory, in order to identify with the weak and helpless and yet enduring violence and human injustice. He bore humanity's sin all the way to divine justice, being then raised to even greater honor and authority to rule, taking authority but only after losing it in service to the weak. Like this should change every bit of the way we hear those words that Carly read today. Every bit of the way we see justice played out in our world, every way we, our hearts, have to engage with the idols of America. I want to read these words again for you as our close today. I want these words to be... Um, something of a call... This is biblical justice. Friends, once you were in darkness, but now in the Lord you are light. And so walk as children of light. For the fruit of that light is found in all that is good and right and true and pure. Try to find out what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, rather expose them, for it is shameful even to mention what, what some people do and think in, in secret, secretly, but everything 
exposed by the light becomes visible. For everything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, sleepers, all of us, awake, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be careful then how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. So do not be foolish, but understand what the will of God is. And finally, be strong in the Lord, and in the strength of his power, put on the whole armor of God, so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the evil one. For our struggle is not with flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil at work in this already but not yet. Take up the full armor of God so that you may stand firm. Would you pray with me? God, if there is um, one posture we should take, it is that of listening. Not speaking first, but just listening. Hearing really hearing each other. But in this space right here, God, we just, we do the same with you. There's one posture we should take before you, God, it's to just listen. Sometimes you speak to us um, audibly, and if we were to just be quiet, you might, you might say something to us. We may have something move in us, some sense of your speaking, uh, but sometimes you speak to us through your saints, through your martyrs. Through your activists. Through the poor and the oppressed. Through the testimonies. And so we listen, God, to you, and we draw near to that great story that is filled with all of that, that leads us closer to the light and away from the darkness. We know, God, that this doesn't end here, that this conversation is just a beginning place. But God, we do believe that there is some um, maybe concluding work happening and bringing us finally, maybe, even to a place we've never been. We can rejoice in that somewhere in us. Maybe somewhere in us we are in a new place because of being confronted by your love. Being a little antagonized by your love. God, we offer ourselves today to you in in praying that prayer that was really all about 
um, power and who's, who has the power, which is you, God. And so we pray together, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.